The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. We are continuing in our series on the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And today I'm going to be speaking on the subject of the gospel. The gospel. Now, before you mature Christians tune me out, I want to challenge you to listen because though you may think you're familiar with the gospel, I really believe that this sermon will be of great benefit to you. In the contemporary church, the understanding of the gospel is often very narrow at best. And scholars tell us that our version in the contemporary church of the gospel would be almost unrecognizable to the early church. So that being said, let's go to Paul's great summation of the gospel, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered to you of, uh, as of first importance what I also received. And here it is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You might bracket that phrase. And that he appeared to Cephas, that would be Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the word of the Lord, and I pray that you receive it as such. You may be seated. Well, let me start by getting a little interaction from you today. I'd like you to do something very quickly. Don, real quick. I'd like you to uh, take a moment and on a piece of paper or on your phone you can type or just in your mind you can log your answer but I want you to just think of your summation of the gospel your explanation of the gospel if you were to to share the gospel with somebody on an airplane or somebody at work or wherever how would you explain the gospel all right so we're gonna have some awkward silence and you just take a moment and think through that if you're watching online I'd love for you to do this as well I guess I could do that while you're working. All right. You got it? Raise your hand if you have it. All right. Four of you. All right. Good. How many have no idea what to write? I mean, honest, that's okay. All right. So let me begin by talking about what the gospel is not. The gospel is not your personal testimony. All right? Your testimony is a great thing. Thank you, brother. Your testimony is a great thing to share, but it is not the gospel. So if I see you crossing that out, I, I know what, what your answer was. 
The gospel is not God loves you and has a plan for your life, though that's true. It's not the gospel. The gospel, maybe surprisingly to you, is not primarily about how to go to heaven when you die. We see from our text today, if I I had to just clarify what the gospel is, I'm going to unpack this and expound on it. But the gospel is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus. So I want to expound on this idea uh, by going through three main points today. And I am sorry if I ever needed a PowerPoint, it was today. But I finished at 9.30 last night. This was a, a tough sermon uh, but to, to, to prepare for. You'd think the gospel, I'm a preacher, would be easy, right? I thought this was going to be like an hour sermon. No, uh, it's never easy when you, when you deal with the Word of God. So number one, I want to go through the meaning of the word gospel. Just in the ancient world, what the word meant. Number two, the New Testament explanation of gospel, what the New Testament writers understood to be the gospel. And number three, the significance of the gospel. Why does this even matter? All right? So I hope you came ready to think a bit today. We're going to go a bit deep, but this is going to be very, very helpful to us, I believe. So let's begin with the general meaning in the ancient world of the word gospel. So the Greek word that is translated in the New Testament gospel in, uh, in, in the Greek is euangelion, all right, euangelion. And it's a compound word, eu, uh, E-U, simply means good, and angelion means announcement. So you could translate it good announcement. That's why we say good news. Everybody with me so far? Now, Hebrew scholar Dr. Tim Mackey writes that there are actually two Hebrew words that are the equivalent of the New Testament Greek word euangelion. All right, so you have the Hebrew form in the Old Testament. So first of all, you have the Hebrew verb basar. Not bizarre, but basar, though that does sound bizarre. And what a basar was, it was a declaration of a royal announcement. So for example, in 2 Samuel 18.31... When King David heard a messenger basar or declare that his army was victorious in battle, this meant that he still ruled on the throne over the people of Israel. All right? Then there's a noun equivalent in Hebrew, which is besarah. Besarah, it's the noun. And in, in Kings, in 1 Kings, we read that when David's son Solomon was inaugurated as the new king, that a messenger spread the Besorah or the good news that a new ruler was in charge. All right, are you with me? The Greek word then, euangelion, was used in a very similar way in the first century, particularly in the Roman world. So I looked up kind of the etymology. Matthew, you'll love this. I looked up the etymology of the word euangelion. And uh, this is just a secular source, but the Encyclopedia um, Britannica states this, that this classical Greek word, euangelion, means a reward for bringing good news or the good news itself. In the emperor cult particularly, in which the Roman emperor was venerated as the spirit and protector of the empire, the term took on a religious meaning. The announcement of the appearance or accession to the throne of the ruler. So in contemporary Greek, it denoted a weighty, authoritative, royal, and official message. So 
Think of the word gospel like this. It is a kingly announcement or a, an announcement of victory. All right, I know it's a little deep, but I, I want you to understand the, the word in the context of the Bible. It is a royal announcement. All right, raise your hand if you're with me. All right, most of you. So a modern-day example of this type of announcement might be the news of Germany's surrender that was proclaimed throughout the world joyfully on May 8, 1945, or later that year when President Harry S. Truman announced the good news that Japan had finally surrendered, which meant an end to the bloody World War II. Gospel in general terms, is this national announcement of victory, or if you like, I like this verse, a royal announcement, all right? So then, what is the New Testament explanation of the gospel? What is the gospel in the New Test Testament? First and foremost, I want you to understand this, that the usage of euangelion or gospel in the New Testament is not disconnected from the normal way it was used. All right, it is a royal announcement. So Matthew 4.23 says this, Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, watch this, the gospel or the good news, the royal announcement of what? The kingdom. It is a royal announcement and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So I asked you just a moment ago to define the gospel, and, and I, wanna, I want you, you to be honest. How many of you have in your explanation anything that refers to the kingdom of God or Jesus being king? Anybody? Do you? Good job. Noah, did you? Did you raise your hand? Okay, I was going, wow, man, that's awesome. <laughs> so the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached was his proclamation that he had come to bring God's rule and saving reign to earth. So I would argue that this should be a central part of our understanding of the good news, that Jesus, in fact, is king. The fascinating part of this is that Jesus would come to power. You know, he preached uh, the gospel of the kingdom, but he would not come to power by just walking over those who opposed him, running them over. That's what Israel wanted. But instead, what did he do? He was ushering in a new kingdom. You might call it the upside-down kingdom, or perhaps better said as the right-side-up kingdom. So instead of just walking over his enemies, what did he do? Instead of destroying them, he actually died for those on earth who would oppose him. Fascinating. So with that in mind, let's unpack the most robust explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, our text. So the first and second verse, now I would remind you, brothers, Paul writes, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached unless you believed in vain. So it is clear in this text, amongst others, that the gospel is central to the Christian faith. Would you agree with that? So it might be helpful if we know how to articulate it. 
It is, as Paul says, it is the true gospel that saves and sustains us as believers. So understand the gospel is not just for uh, non-Christians that might want to be Christians. It's not just what gets, gets you saved, but it is also the gospel that is what sustains you. The gospel's saving effects, though, understand this, are only appropriated to people. This is not universal salvation, but the effects are only appropriated to those who, as Paul says, receive it. It is not enough, and some of you might be here watching online perhaps, where where you say, well, I believe in the facts of the gospel, but perhaps you have not received the gospel yourself. What then is the gospel? Paul defines it beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. And he goes on to, that's Peter, and he goes on to list other appearances. In the mid-1960s, there's a man by the name of Bill Bright, who was the then president of the Campus Crusade for Christ. And he formulated uh, what what are referred to as the four spiritual laws that have now become thought of as being synonymous with the gospel. Let me just articulate these uh, four laws. And these, by the way, are all true. Number one is this. God loves you and has a plan for your life. Number two, you are sinful and therefore separated from God. Therefore, you cannot know and experience God's plan for your life. Number three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for your sin. And number four, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And then we can know and experience God's plan for our lives. Now, again, none of these spiritual laws are necessarily untrue. But do you see the difference in our gospel, in Paul's gospel? Do you you notice this is very typical in the Western world? Do you hear me harp on it about every Sunday? Western individualism, do you see that in this formation of the quote-unquote gospel? These four spiritual laws, it's very, very me-centered, right? Paul's gospel, the gospel of the New Testament, is not about four spiritual laws. Instead, as we see in our text, it is about at least four chapters in the life of Jesus, His death and burial, number one. Number two, his lordship. Number three, his resurrection and his return. uh, His resurrection and number four, his return. If you go on and read the rest of the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. So let me just walk through these points very quickly. Number one, Jesus died for our sins and was buried. The text begins by telling us that Jesus died and he died for a purpose. For our sins. Amen? Professor and New Testament scholar Dr. Scott McKnight in his compelling book, compelling book, The Gospel of the Kingdom, writes about three aspects of Jesus' death. I love this. Number one, Jesus died with us. Number two, Jesus died instead of us. And number three, Jesus died for us. Let's just walk through these. Jesus died, number one, with us. So when Paul writes that Jesus died, the implication is that he took on flesh. That he, took, he entered fully, as it were, into the human condition, and he lived a sinless life. He died only because he was willing to enter into that human condition. He died with us. 
He is Emmanuel, God with us. Then you have, number two, Jesus died instead of us. We refer to the death of Christ as a substitutionary death, simply meaning that he died the death what was due to us. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Amen? He died in our place. He, he took the punishment for our sins. He died instead of us. And finally, Jesus died for us. Through his death, Jesus did procure forgiveness of our sins. And he has brought us near to God. His death is atoning. His death is redeeming. His death is ransoming. His death is justifying. His death is reconciling. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sin. Sorry, I can't get my mic to stay. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Hallelujah. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Jesus' death is central to the gospel message. Praise the Lord that he died with us. He died instead of us, and he died for us. Number two, second chapter of the gospel. Jesus was raised on the third day, and he appeared to many. Many gospel presentations focus heavily on the cross, but they fail to mention even the resurrection. I heard a, read in that same book of Scott McKnight, I read a story of a testimony of one of his students, seminary students. Her, her name is Deborah. Didn't give her last name, but her name's Deborah. And Deborah went to youth camp every single year when she was a teenager. And every year it was the same experience. They would have what they called cross night. And on cross night, the, the youth pastors would all play this video on the big screen. And it was a gruesome portrayal of the crucifixion. And when emotions were raised and high, they would say, now who wants to follow Jesus? And there was no mention of the resurrection. And there was certainly, actually the, the second coming was something to be frightened about. I think it's important in our gospel presentation that we include the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, understand this, Jesus' death would be nothing for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and 18, in case you don't believe me, uh, says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So he said, Christ died for our sins, but if he is not raised, you are still in your sins. You are not forgiven. He says, those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in Christ have perished if Christ is not raised. If in Christ we have hope in this life only. Listen to what Paul says. He says, we of all people, Christians, are most to be pitied. The resurrection is vital. Our faith, as a matter of fact, hinges on one event. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our faith does not hinge on unanswered prayers. Our, our faith does not hinge on the way you've been treated by some Christians, unfortunately. Um, but the, our faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus, after being raised from the dead, Paul makes clear, appeared to many people, including Paul himself. And this in part is to validate Jesus' resurrection as not just some spiritual truth, but a historical fact. Paul is, in essence, in, in this letter, writing to his fellow believers and saying, hey, you don't believe me? Go talk to the people that have seen Christ. 
Paul himself was an opponent of Christ before he saw him. He did not believe him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. But what would make Paul go from opposing and persecuting Christians to giving his very life for the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's only one plausible answer, and that is that Paul really, truly believed that Jesus is raised from the dead, that he is the Messiah. Friends, he is risen. Amen? Vital to the gospel presentation. Number three, a fact that we often don't acknowledge This is part of the gospel message. It is the fact that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. At the core of the gospel is not just events, but it is the person of Jesus Christ. In our text, we find that Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the dead, as Paul says, in accordance with the scriptures. We just kind of blow past that part of the verse, don't we? In accordance with the scriptures. Now what's interesting is that Paul doesn't point here to a specific passage. Like in Isaiah. As he could have. But instead I believe and scholars believe that he means here that he died and he was risen. That he is the fulfillment of what all the Old Testament pointed to as a whole. Remember, let me just walk you through some of the story of the Old Testament. Remember that uh, God promised Abraham after the fall, after everything had done. We could start in Genesis, but let me just start with Abraham. God promised Abraham that through his offspring, remember, all nations would be blessed. And then he promised David, we're skipping way ahead, but he promised David in 1 Chronicles 7, 11 through 14, that through his lineage, that Israel's throne would be established forever. This was a great promise. But then after David and Solomon, Israel had a line of really up kings, which eventually led to Israel's destruction. But Isaiah prophesied that a Messiah, a true Messiah, would come. The one who would come and deal once and for all with sin and would finally and ultimately fulfill the promises of Israel. So in the New Testament, when Jesus went around announcing, quote, the good news of the kingdom, he was announcing that the king had come. The Messiah had come. He is the Messiah. Jesus, get this, he is the fulfillment of Israel's story. He is the cosmic king and the one through whom all the world would be blessed. And then Paul refers to Jesus as the Christ. And we in the Western world need to remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Come on. Right? No, it is a title that means Messiah, anointed king, Lord, ruler. That's who Jesus is. Remember, the gospel is a royal announcement. The announcement is this. Don't miss it. Jesus is king. He is king. You might remember in the gospel accounts that when Jesus, right before he was hung on the cross, remember a crown of thorns was put on his head and a purple robe wrapped around his body. Why? Because they were mocking him and, and laughing at him saying, come on, do something, king of the Jews. Little did they know that as they thought they were defeating him and they hung him on the tree, they were putting him on a wooden throne. That through the cross, he would be exalted 
It's interesting that the very ones that hung him on the tree, Jesus was dying for offering them salvation. He died for our sins. It's pivotal to the gospel that we see that Jesus is king. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel. Well, that's the condensed version of Paul's gospel, and it's interesting that he includes the offspring of David. Why? Because through his death and resurrection, Jesus dealt decidedly with all dominion, authority, and power. He is king, and, king, and his kingdom is now breaking in. Finally, the great news and our great hope is that Jesus will return to consummate his kingdom. Many scholars believe that 1 Corinthians 15, in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul's discussion of the gospel continues all the way through verse 28. He talks about the implications of the resurrection for a while in chapter 15. And then he writes about Christ's return. When death will utterly be destroyed. Every dominion, every power, every principality will ultimately be done away with. Let's just read some of these verses. 1 Corinthians 15 beginning in verse 20. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as... By a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every ruler and every authority and power. The gospel includes the fact that God has inaugurated his kingdom through his, Jesus' death and resurrection. And in the end, Christ will return to consummate that kingdom. And it will be the only kingdom that remains. Better be careful which kingdom you're following. Because it's the only, God's kingdom is the only kingdom that will remain left standing. We shall be forever part of that kingdom. We shall live eternally in the perfect new creation under his lordship. I told you that the, the gospel is not mainly about getting to heaven. We have sometimes this dualist view, a dualistic view of, of ourselves where we're just be forever disembodied spirits floating on a cloud somewhere, bored out of our minds maybe. <laughs> There's a great far side cartoon that depicts that. A guy's sitting on a cloud and he's got wings, of course, and he says, uh, man, I wish I would have bought a brought a magazine. <laughs> There's some mystery what happens when we die on this earth. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that's a temporary state. The hope of the Christian, friends, is resurrection. Bodily resurrection. That's why Paul makes it clear that Christ was raised bodily. He appeared bodily. And you and I will have resurrected bodies. And we will be in God's new and perfect creation. You think this world is beautiful? It is. But it's corrupted because of sin. You haven't seen anything yet. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that the world is crying out. It's groaning. He uses this word groaning for its redemption. The creation itself is being renewed. So the gospel is the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his lordship, his soon return. So I'll close with 
talking about the significance. Why does all of this matter? The gospel is often summarized in the contemporary church as simply the forgiveness of sins. And while that is part, an important part of the gospel, the gospel is more than that. Jesus said, as recorded in Mark 1.15, get this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So to believe the gospel, hear me, is to understand that Jesus is Lord. It is to believe in his death. It is to believe in his resurrection and his soon return. Now to repent, when Jesus says repent and believe the gospel, what's he saying? We think of repent and well, that's just being sorry for my sins. And while that's part of it, let me tell you what repentance really is. It is a change of mind. Matter of fact, it's a change of direction. Let me just paint this picture for you. Jesus comes on the scene. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he is revealing himself as the king, as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And he's about to be enthroned on the cross and then raised and exalted to the right hand of the Father, ascending into heaven. And his kingdom is inaugurated. And here is what he's asking when he says, repent and believe the gospel. And this is what true Christian faith looks like. It is to bow your knee at the throne of Jesus, at the foot of the cross. It is to get off the throne of your own life and to say, Jesus, I surrender all. This is why Paul says in Romans 10, 9, a verse we love to quote, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Well, we, we get the believing in your heart, but what does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? It's to bow a knee. It's to surrender fully to him. Say, Lord, I believe you're king, and I want to be part of your kingdom. It's not salvation by works. It's not. But this is repentance is the other sign of the coin of faith. It's what it, faith is. It's not just intellectual belief. James talks about this. Faith without works is dead, but repentant faith is what saves. It is, again, giving your allegiance to Jesus Christ. I visited a church a couple of years ago on one of my weeks off, and the pastor preached a message about being a disciple of Jesus. And the premise of the message was that some of you in the congregation believe and you're going to heaven. But you're not following Jesus. You're not a disciple. So today, make another decision and actually follow him. I'm not so sure that the Bible makes a distinction. It's being taught in many churches. Well, all you got to do is believe the right thing. Right? No, that's not the whole story. Belie yes, that in, in a sense that's true. But believing is giving your allegiance to Jesus Christ. It is saying, Lord, here I am, your disciple, a real Father, uh, follower of Jesus. The late writer and philosopher Dallas Willard in talking about the importance of getting the gospel of the kingdom correct says that if all you hear is the message of the forgiveness of sins without hearing about the kingdom and the lordship of Jesus, he says that, quote, the rest of your life you will run on your own and you may or may not think of being a disciple of Jesus or obeying him or devoting your life to the kingdom of God. He says you can still do that, but those things become optional for you. He writes, that is where we really stand in our Christian culture today. 
Anything more than forgiveness of sins, and by that I mean heaven when you die, is optional. And most of our professed believers now do not know that they can live in the kingdom of God now. End quote. Friends, it's tragic that we only preach a part of the gospel and that we've turned it into just how to get to heaven. The Christian life is more than just getting to heaven. It's present implica- it has present implications now. His kingdom has already been inaugurated. We are to live as kingdom people now. The invitation's already there. So the way that you often hear the gospel presented is something like this, and this goes really well with modern people. Hey, you know what? God created you as good, but Adam sinned, and we've all sinned, so God's going to set you on fire forever. But if you believe in Jesus, you can go to heaven. Boy, that's compelling. I'm not saying there's not truth in there. But let me give you, uh, I, I prayed over this quite a while. Let me give you a better invitation when presenting the gospel. Because the gospel is more than a get out of hell free card. Literally, we've uh, reduced it to literally scaring the hell out of people, right? You better turn or burn. I don't have signs for you to to go on the street this morning and just repent or die. No, let me give you the good news of the kingdom. Here it is. Uh, Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Are you listening? I'm closing here, I promise. Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's kingdom is breaking in. And he has invited us through Jesus to be part of that kingdom. Here's the invitation. Let me have your full attention for two more minutes. Here's the invitation. He invites us to move from darkness into light, from death into eternal life, from sin into right living, from condemnation into forgiveness, from brokenness into wholeness, from distance from God into the family of God, from our own miserable kingdoms into God's glorious kingdom, from fallen humanity into the new humanity, from the corrupted creation into the new creation. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has become king. And through faith, you and I get the distinct privilege of being part of his kingdom even now. This, friends, is the greatest news in all of history. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.